Truth on the Sluts fans, Jonathan Walsh here. Thanks for joining and listening in for uh, round 21 uh, up against the Giants this week. As always, I do have my trusty co-host. Well, I was going to say alongside me, but uh, alongside me in in, um, in the internet verse, uh, Humi, how are you, mate? Good, thanks, mate. One of these one of these days, we will do a one we're actually together. So we'll see how we'll see what happens then if we get up to any mischief when we're actually there. But uh, for the moment, you know, we'll just stick with the stick with the online and, and see how we go. Yeah, we're on other sides of the Westgate these days, mate. So it's a little bit harder um, post work to get together. But uh, yeah, but here we are. How's your week been? Yeah, no, no complaints. You know, it's always always good after a win, especially Sunday afternoon win you go into Monday feeling pretty good um you know I'm not sure how much we take out of that game but I'm sure we'll, we'll go through it and really explore what uh what happened there and, and what we can take out of it yeah it makes for a long week when you play 440 on a Sunday if you get rolled particularly if you go out and get rolled by the bottom side uh and you know team at least in my case I don't particularly like so yeah it was it was definitely get good to get a win and and not be involved in in one that was too much of a I guess a heart starter in the end and and you know whilst we didn't particularly play well throughout it was uh, at least the result throughout the last quarter was never really in doubt. No, and I think you know, there was there were there's obviously probably one clear point of concern based on that game, but the rest of the game held up quite well, and uh, I think that's what gave us the win in the end. So we'll, we'll might as well get stuck into the review. So. I think there's a lot of apprehension when you play uh, teams down the bottom. You're worried that the the side is going to, you know, not not get up for the game and, and not be up and about thinking they're just going to have an easy win, uh, especially after coming off the low of the Pies game as well. I think there was a danger that, you know, you could have had a, a, a lower performance. And we set a key, um, a KPI of 75 turnovers. So, uh, North Melbourne is as a way of demonstrating if our effort and pressure are up to the required level. If we reach that level, then we would have been, you know, up up for the game. And North Melbourne generally turned the ball over sixty nine and a half times a game, and the benchmark, which is the Magpies, to uh, achieve seventy five uh, turnovers game or uh, generate seventy five turnovers a game. And so we wanted to set that benchmark of of achieving what the best sides do. Uh, what was your view of that? How did we go there? Yeah, I thought it was probably the the main positive out of the game, really, from a, a team and game style perspective. There wasn't a lot to take away out of it. Uh, there were some definitely some individual performances that were worth noting. You know, Redmond was incredible. Stringer kicked five goals, and we saw some young kids run around. And and you know, Zach Merritt had a really good game. But I think from the level of performance we've seen more recently against some sides that are travelling better than the Roos, it. it I think the only thing that I really took out of it from a team perspective was that it didn't appear to me that we went out expecting an easy game and, and sort of played millionaire football. Uh, you know, they had 78 turnovers for the game. So, you know, we were, you know, we wanted sort of 75 to 80, you know, 20 a quarter, give or take. Uh, so we hit that. And I guess in the end, it was just as well, given the way clearances went, we got smashed at the centre bounce. And in general, stoppages around the ground as well. So, you know, and granted, North bought a fair bit of that on themselves just through poor execution. But I thought generally our pressure levels were pretty good. They they had pretty much one kick for, or one handball per kick. So they had a ratio of 1.05, uh, which is their lowest of the season. So I think that's always a good indicator that you're forcing teams to do something that they're not really intending to do when they're, they're typically over handballing. We had 28 intercept marks which was a season high for us and and Redmond himself who we who I touched on had six so you know we we really did control that sort of back half of the ground um plus 16 tackles for the game was our second best differential for the year and then plus 13 inside 50 tackles was our our biggest differential or best differential for the season so I think you know in terms of defensive effort and pressure I think there's a strong indicator there that we didn't just expect to get the game on our terms and I think what's really pleasing was it was our more senior players that led the, sack, the tackle count. Merritt had 10, Stringer 7, Snelling 6, Langford 5. So I guess we haven't seen a lot of that from our leaders, you know, generally over the last couple of years when things have been going bad, they've been going bad too. So 
they made sure that their performance was was really strong. And you know, I know Snelling's only he plays his fiftieth game this week, so he's not uh, overly experienced. But those four, um, yeah, did a really good job making sure that the rest of the group followed, and, and that our defensive effort was really high. Well, as you say, even though Snelling has only played fifty games, I think the way the club treats him, they they treat him as a leader. You, you see how they got him back in quite quickly. They were really keen to have him. He sets, I think, he sets some pretty high standards in terms of you know, sticking to the game plan. So, again, him showing that way is really important for the team moving forward that we, we get, you know, good output from him in, in the defensive aspects. Now, we were talking about who was the target for the tag. Uh, you wanted to target Luke Davies Uniaki um, as he was the number one for score involvements and number two for score launches and, as well as second for clearances. And the Corwell tag seemed to be partly on him. It wasn't always on him, but we did manage to restrict him, particularly the half time with before Caldwell's injury. We he had twelve disposals but only one stoppage clearance and he attended eleven seven center bounces for zero center clearances, which is far below what he's been doing this season. How did you see that play out? Yeah, I'm I'm actually not sure how it did, to be honest. I, I did try and keep a close look uh, at it and it looked like Caldwell did try to get to LDU, but at the same time Simpkin tried to get to him to try and help break up that tag and, and LDU went to Merritt. Um, so I think North were probably aware that it was coming and, and had a bit of a plan himself. And then at least, well, for the first half, obviously, because Caldwell went off injured, uh, it was mostly Simpkin that he was at at centre bounces. And then around the ground, it looked a bit more generally that it was was um, David Uniac. So I'm not really sure how that one played out, but um, you know, in the end, we we got well beaten up in the centre. Um, that wasn't because of Davies Uniac, but it, it was because of players like Greenwood and um, and Simpkin himself had a big impact. So, yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure that anything to do with the way that we went about our centre bounces in particular really went to plan. Uh, some of the, you know, we had a bit of bad luck. We, you know, got a couple of bad bounces and things like that, but. Mainly, we just got way too sucked into the ball and um, and really lost our balance and shape. And it, it wasn't that Goldstein was dominating the hitouts and putting it down their midfielders' throats. They they did a much better job reading Draper's hand and 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 right at times and and winning clearances when they got clear hitouts. So yeah, I think it was the part of the game that if we had our time again, I think we would like to have done a lot better at. Absolutely. And you imagine they would have reviewed that going up against uh, GWS, who also have uh, are fairly good at, at clearance. And if it's a similar performance this week at at the uh, centre bounces, you know, you're probably not going to get as many opportunities to, to get the turnover as North Melbourne are going to are going to generate. So it's probably an area of concern, obviously, with, with Parrish coming back. That's a big in for that. But we'll get to that later on. Uh, Larkey and Zerha. So we obviously, I think, if you're going to play North Melbourne, those are the two key forwards that you're most concerned about. And the key was to get the matchups right. And we, we originally were going to send Ridley and Laverty to beat them. Uh, overall, you, would you say the back line was a highlight? Of the the matchups didn't quite work out like we thought. But you know, I think particularly with once BZT got moved onto Larkey, that that really shut him out of the game and, and dried up one of their key scoring options. Yeah, I didn't think Kelly was the right match. I was worried about Zerha and, and his strength and ability overhead. I think Kelly's really good on uh, on medium forwards, but Zerha's one that I guess plays more like an old-fashioned centre-half forward, full forward, but he's also got some real dynamic ability when the ball hits the ground. So I actually thought it really suited Laverde really well. But that said, Kelly did a really good job on, on Tim Membry, didn't he? Granted, Zerha's a, a much better player than than Membry is, but they're similar sort of profiles and statures. Um, Wait, do you mean Callum, Colm and Callum Jones? Sorry, no, no, no. Sorry, I mean uh, back when we played St Kilda. If you oh, remember, sorry, Kelly went to yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah. you're right. Um, no, no, Kelly, Kelly went to Membry. Membry Zerha similar sort of size and stature. So I, I guess I can appreciate why um, the coaching staff went that way, but. Yeah, I think Zerha had the better of him. He kicked four of their nine goals. And Larky looked dangerous in the first quarter, didn't he? He took a couple of marks and kicked, thankfully for us, missed both of them, kicked two points. And Zerk Thatcher then, you know, sort of wore him for the rest of the game. And I think he had 
two marks for over the last three quarters. I don't think he had a disposal at all in the second quarter and um, and only kicked one more behind. So, yeah, I think we we ultimately, you know, can't be too disappointed with the outcome there. They only kicked the nine goals for the game, but I think yeah, maybe Laverto might have been one to, to curtail Zerha had, uh, had we gone that way. But, yeah, I think overall our, our back line stood up and, and were pretty incredible. Well, they probably you probably would have needed both of them to you know kick kick four or five for them to be a chance. And yes, sir, uh, got off the chain. And sometimes some players are going to get off the chain. You're not going to be able to stop everyone. But uh, just another tick for BZT and his his continued development. You know, there was the the Fletcheress spoil from the one that he had no right to stop. Uh, you know, I think that really that's the sort that's the sort of action that you know gets gets fans and supporters really behind someone and then wanting to lock them in the side. So especially with players like Reed coming through and then potentially Cody Brand, he's he's going to have to start do, doing a lot to hold his spot. And if he continues to play like that, he's not going to have much problem doing that. Yeah, one thing to keep an eye on him when, when you're watching the game on the weekend is just the way that he uses his hips, both in marking contests and on lead. So he's become really, really good at putting his opponents off balance and, and that really helps him to to use those long arms to get a spoil in. Uh, and that was something that, you know, Fletch was pretty good at too. Uh, you know, Dustin Fletcher was never blessed with amazing strength. I don't think he put on any weight over his, you know, 45-year career. But, um, but yeah, Zerk Thatcher's become really, really good at that. And, and I think that that diving spoil, just the fact that he was able to turn his body and not land in like his back and give a free kick away was, a, you know, pretty unique ability. I reckon... You know, if that was Laverde or or one of our other defenders, they might have got the fist in, but probably landed in his back and and given away a phrase. So yeah, you know, I don't want to overstate him, but I think he's um, he's improved a lot and got some unique defending abilities that we haven't seen for a while. Absolutely, and to turn to the other end of the ground, we we were concentrating on the the right Mackay matchup as as the key matchup in the forward line. Uh, and we wanted to see Wright get further up the ground, really take Mackay away from the contest and then allow that to make better use of Jones and Stringer on, on lesser opponents. And it was really clear that when you went and looked at Wright's heat map that in the first half, he really wasn't doing that. He was, he was staying quite close to goal and didn't quite have that impact. And it wasn't until the third quarter when you, you start to see him moving up and down the ground that he, he actually got some space in Mackay and that's when he was able to, to get to use his use his really uh, powerful uh, uh, running ability to work him work him over and, and find space in the forward line to to kick goals. How did you see that play out? Yeah, I think you nailed it, mate. I, I thought he was a bit lazy early. I, I, I and he got behind McKay a lot, and and I'm not sure that that's a tactic that you know was something a bit of a plan that they went with. But to me. It was the first time, as we noted last week, that Wright's really come up against someone who can match him for height and, and strength. So I, I'm not sure whether, yeah, as I said, that was something that they planned to do or or it was just Peter, you know, being a little bit lazy and, and not playing his type of game that we've been used to. So I think in the first half, it wasn't great. But after half time, as you mentioned, he did get up the ground a lot more and, and used his, his running ability to... Um, yeah, to try and get some space on McKay, as you mentioned. So, yeah, I think it, it all worked out in the end. Stewart and Jones kicked five between them, didn't they? So, I think, you know, in the end, it, it was a pretty reasonable outcome. Absolutely. So, I guess just sort of rounding off the, the North review, you know, it's, for me, it's hard, to, it's hard to take too much out, out of a game like that other than the fact that we could win. Normally, our, normally our wins have come from clearance dominance, center clearance dominance and, and matching teams in the stoppage. This was a game that we managed to win without that. So I think that that to me is a positive. I don't know how well that stands up against better sides, but the fact that we could fight, we found another way to win uh, was pleasing. What did you take out of that game? Yeah, I think that's the really good point. Um, we, we have relied on stoppage clearance dominance to really set up our game and we didn't have that. It was more reliant on you know, firstly, a lot of defensive pressure and, and effort around the ground, but then also some individual efforts, so or individual brilliance. And we had one in each third of the ground, really, didn't we? Redmond was clearly the best defender on the ground. Uh, Zach Merritt was clearly the best midfielder on the ground. And then 
Stringer was clearly the best forward on the ground, um, albeit Zohar probably wasn't all that far behind him, but but Stringer had an impact sort of more generally even when he wasn't kicking goals. So, yeah, I I, I think we just take the win as a starting point. We haven't had enough of them this year. We, we played the bottom side, so we shouldn't get too excited. Uh, but we still had 11 players in that game under 50 games. So, you know, we, we were actually less experienced and younger than them. Not that we should take too much away from that either, but I think, you know, we played poorly at times and we won by eight goals. So, uh, you know, I think you, you just take that. I think I think we take confidence that our effort and defensive effort in particular was strong throughout the game. We, we didn't take the foot off the pedal. I mean, even really late in the game, we saw some of our leaders still chasing and tackling. And, um, you know, I think Zach wasn't at, like, right near the end, put in a big defensive effort. So I think that's a sign of, of maturity and improvement in itself. Uh, we saw Hobbs and to a lesser extent Perkins get more midfield time against a pretty talented North midfield as well. So I think we take that away. James Stewart came back into the side, kicked three goals. We got to have a look at what three, you know, genuine tall forwards might look for us, albeit against a, a, a sort of the shorter North Melbourne defence. Uh, Menzi debuted and, and showed some good signs. That that bullet pass to James Stewart was, uh, yeah, it was really good to see. And, and then... Massimo got another game under his belt as well, uh, albeit both of them have been omitted for this week. But, yeah, I think I think they're the key to me, mate. Fantastic. So, yeah, obviously we'll take the win and we'll, we'll move on to GWS soon. But before we get to that, let's have a bit of a look at the news. And there's a few contract rumours out and about. The first is Dyson Heppel. I think the, the general chat is that he's been offered one year by Essendon. Uh, but there's some noise coming coming through that Gold Coast might be making an approach for two years. What's your thoughts on that that talk? I think for me, it's less about the tenure and more about the money uh, in terms of our own salary cap management. So if, uh, you know, I, I really value Dyson Heppel's leadership. I think we're already a really young list. I don't think we can be... A, uh, we we can afford to lose too much experience right now. And I know Dyson gets a lot of criticism because we look at leaders like Joel Salwood and Scott Pendlebury and, and he's not them and he can't be them and he never will be. He, all, all he can be is, is Dyson Heppel. So I think it's it's unfair to judge him on something he's not. I think we should judge him on, on what he actually is. And I think he's playing reasonable footy. I think since moving to the wing, uh, he's been really effective. I think there are times where he's still... He's a bit slow to move the ball forward, but generally he just does give us a bit more of a mature head um, in, in that part of the ground. And he is really good at reading the play and knowing when to get back and get forward. So I, I still think he's got two years. I think if we need to give him two to keep him, we should do it. But if Gold Coast are offering him big dollars to get him there, I think we, we're probably better served copying the hit, letting him go, thanking him for his service, and then keeping money in the bank to, to try and um, build our list with somebody who's going to take us forward beyond, you know, uh, two years' time. Mm. I, I, I slightly disagree. I think I think one year's the right offer from the club. I guess money, money, as you sort of say, money might be the, the more pertinent uh, problem here. And given, again, this is, you, you're going off industry talk, so you don't know how accurate it is, but it does sound like we've got a lot of money in the cap. If they have to find it, you know, a, a couple of hundred thousand dollars to keep him, I'm sure they'd be able to find that and not really limit their ability to, to sign players there. But uh, I, I think Essendon's right to offer a year, and he's right to look at other options that may keep him in the game longer, and that's his right as well. And if, if that's what happens and, and he accepts that, that longer-term offer, I think you, you shake his hand and you thank him for his service, and, and he's always welcome back as a, as a club. He's probably a club great, best and fairest, all-Australian player, captain. He's, he's a club great in my view. Um, but you know, you you let him keep his career going as long as as long as he wants to in, in that that sense. So you wouldn't, I wouldn't begrudge him that. The other one that that sort of came up today was uh, Stewart. Now he has it sounds like he has actually been offered two years. Obviously, he's he's been injury prone and has played at both ends of the ground. Do you think two years is the right call for a player like Stewart? Yeah, I think you would probably get that elsewhere. I think there's enough clubs that could do with the key an experienced key defender or key forward depending which end of the ground or or just the versatile key position player in general I think uh, I think forward is his position so I hope that's where he stays and 
yeah, I, I I liked what I saw last week. I'm glad we get to see another or get another opportunity this week. And I think when we were playing really good footy a few years ago with him as that third tall forward, if you remember, we had you know Joey Danaher was all Australian that year and Hooker played forward and kicked forty odd goals. Uh, yeah, I think he he can be. Yeah, really. I think he can add a lot of value to us. So, yeah, I think two years is the right call. Hopefully, we we can keep him fit and uh, and and he can have an impact and you know become a sort of goal and a half to two goal player, a two goal a game player for us next year. Absolutely, and I think I, I tend to agree. You're right. You you lose players like that when you only offer them one year because, as you say, another club. I think you know a North Melbourne would come at the very least two years. Uh, there's a lot of other clubs looking for tall players you know, that, that are flexible, that would give him two years. So I think it's it's definitely the right option there. But what we're gonna we're gonna do something a bit different tonight. We um I asked a question on Twitter um about Nick Bryan and it threw up some really, really good responses. Uh so I, I basically asked, would you consider trading Bryan? So I the scenario I posited was that uh let's say North are looking for a long term replacement for Goldstein and they throw off pick one, let's assuming that they finish on the bottom for Brian and our first round pick, which uh, expect to be around pick six, pick seven, which values Brian at pick 13. Do you, do you take the offer? And it was very close in terms of the, the poll itself. So yes was 55% and no was 45%. And then the responses were, were really strong on not trading him. So um, what sort of, uh, what sort of triggered this for me was, was his game on the weekend, the VFL. He played a fantastic game. He had 28 disposals, uh, five marks, 34 hitouts, and a goal. And to me, he's getting to the point where he's too good for VFL footy. And I guess, what do you do with a player like that when there's only really one spot in the side for a for a number one ruckman, and it's already occupied by another 10-year prospect in Sam Draper? So I guess what we're going to do now is we're going to have a bit of a debate about uh, what we should do, whether it's an opportunity to trade a, an asset to gain something else back, or to stick with him and and go from there. And what we'd like is if anyone has any thoughts following our arguments that we go through um, and wants to share them on this issue, just put your hand up in the chat and we'll get to you after we've we've covered our arguments. And so I'm going to take the for side in the trade debate and Jono is going to take the against side. You ready to go, Jono? Yeah, mate. Ready when you are. All right. Well, I think four, four should start. The argument, my arguments for trading. So, as I said before, uh, the likelihood of fitting two number one ruckmen in a side is low. Uh, there'll be some games, you know, up against say a Melbourne, uh, Melbourne current, of the current format that's with Luke Jackson and Gorn. You would argue that's a that's a good matchup, but you know, you're not always going to have the best matchup. You're going to come up against sides like uh, Carlton that are running a Silvani as a as a second ruckman, for example, and you may want to have a more uh, mobile mobile option. So there's going to be, you're probably not going to be playing both Ruckman throughout the entirety of the season. And from what we've seen from Draper, particularly over the last couple of years in his development, he's likely to be the first choice Ruckman for the next decade. I'm pretty confident in saying that that's looking quite likely. And, and you obviously can't bank on any of these things uh, long-term, but for the moment, that's where that's where we're at. And as much as you'd love to have what Ryan seems to be the sort of player who could become a top five, top 10 ruckman in the competition. As long you'd, you'd love to have top five or top 10 players in the competition sitting in the VFL as backups for, for your, your gun players. In the end of the day, it's not the best use of resources on a playing list. You've got a finite amount of spaces and you've got a finite amount of money. And if you're paying someone, you'd be have to pay him quite a lot to keep him. Is it worth using that resources for someone who's, who's not going to play best 22 games? Now, we know that there are gaps on the list. In order to get quality players in or quality draft picks, you have to trade something of quality. Now, we know that other teams already value Brian. Gold Coast came quite hard for him last year. So there's clearly other sides that consider him of value. And there's there's sides out there that that need a Ruckman and would love a a 10-year Ruckman. So you could leverage that as a possibility to as as a trading chip there. Now... Sort of, sort of threw out the the Ruckman uh, playbook because they obviously had the best Ruckman in the competition and they won the premiership. But if you look back the last 
decade, decade and a half, the Premiership side has very rarely had even a top three Ruckman in the side or, or the All-Australian Ruckman in it. So if you think back, you know, teams teams have been able to trade in Ruckman to time with their Premiership window. So Nankervis at the Tigers, uh, Eagles with, with Vardy, uh, McAvoy at the Hawks, Mumford with the Swans, uh, Ottens with Geelong, even Jolly to the Pies. Okay, so teams have been able to, to fill that fill that uh, puzzle piece right at right at the end when they're when they're in their window and be successful. Or they haven't traded someone in, they haven't necessarily relied on a on a high quality ruckman, someone you would consider to be top three in the comp. It's you know, Hawthorne had Max Bailey or Robert Campbell rucking in some of their premierships. Uh, Footscray had Jordan Rufford, uh, Eagles had Lysette because obviously Nick Nat uh, was injured for their premiership. So I don't good as it is to have a great Ruckman, it does, the, the pattern sort of suggests that you don't need one in order to win a premiership or you can trade one in when you need to. So losing Brian now, whilst you know he may, he may turn out to be a great player, doesn't necessarily preclude us from being in a trade window. My final point is that if let's we know that GWS, for exa- this is just an example, we know GWS are probably going to lose a few of their, their players and there's, there's some players from GWS that would fit very well in our side. So I think the talk is Taranto might be wanting to leave. If he wanted to come to Essendon as a big body midfielder, which a lot of people think we need, uh, it's worth trading out something that's our area of strength, which is Ruck, and we've got the depth in order to fill an area of weakness. Now, before, before I pack his bags and kick him out the door, I just want to say that I'm not, I'm not putting him out there. I'm not, not, not saying, here you go, guys. Who wants Nick Bryan? Give me your best offer. But... There's a player of need that wants to come to the club, or there's a, there's a club that approaches a really good offer. Um, I think he's a he's the most valuable trading commodity that we have, but doesn't harm the best twenty two if he goes. So that's my arguments. It's gone on for quite a while. Uh, now we're going to hear the arguments against. Yeah, you, you've put up a pretty compelling case, mate, and made this tough for me. So I my mine's a little bit more succinct than than yours, but for good reason. I think there's there's probably less reasons uh, against than there are for. Um, but I, I'm with you. I, I think, well, I, I'm, I'm with you in, the, in terms of the concept of it. I think you should look at everything and it's not, this isn't a judgment on him as a player overall. It's more about what do we need to do to improve our list. But I think the, um, the one thing that we probably should keep in mind is the game does tend to run in cycles. Everyone's chasing the premier, right? So everyone at the moment's looking at what Melbourne did and and or have done and and if they went back to back this year, I think two ruckmen with what they've done with Gorn and Jackson could be back in vogue in a big big way. Ironically, if Geelong won it, the value of ruckman might go down substantially if they happen to win it with, you know, Reece Stanley and and Co. Um, my next point, I think we're seeing some real pressure on the Medi sub rule. The coaches are starting to become really vocal against it. And I think there's a growing sense that it'll change in some way, shape or form. And one of the the most common talking points is that the bench might just get extended to five, which will give teams coverage for an injury. And, and with the interchange caps, I don't think teams will be as compromised if they have an injury during the game um, compared to what we're seeing at the moment. And what I do think that'll allow you to do is run with a lower minutes player and actually play to genuine ruckman more frequently uh, so it won't be a case of finding a ruckman that can also play forward or having two ruckmen that can play both roles I, I think it'll open up the opportunity for it for two genuine rucks to to play and it would effectively allow us to rotate draper and brian off the bench and also um a, a bit more horses for courses depending on the type of ruckman we're playing against and, and who might have the better output on any given week I think the other thing is we don't know his ceiling yet. I think to trade him now or, or in the next, you know, this year or next, uh, when when we, yeah, we don't know what that looks like. He could be a much more valuable asset in the future and that could make it a, a good gamble, a, a big gamble. So if he hypothetically did develop into one of the top three Ruckman in the league and we've traded him now, uh, you know, maybe it's a, a better problem to have in the future when Draper and Bryant are potentially both at that level and then make the decision. And then I think I'm bullish on Draper like you are, uh, and for good reason too, but he is still learning and he, and he still is developing and, and got some parts of his game that need to improve, albeit they're improving rapidly. 
But I don't think it's completely unrealistic that Brian could go past him in a year or two anyway. Uh, you know, he is a bit more of a natural footballer and, yeah, and, and sort of played a bit more. Um, he came through a bit more of a traditional pathway. So, yeah, I, not not that I'm saying we should trade Japer instead, uh, but I think, you know, we should maybe just call the Jets on it and, and now's probably not the right time to, to assess it. So, yeah, they're my points, mate. Um, uh, welcome anybody else to, to throw their hand up and uh, and interrupt, but I don't think there is. Yeah, that's that's all right. Maybe we maybe we've been very um, we've covered all the points there. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if there's much more to say. We we went quite detailed with our arguments there. Um, oh no, we oh, do have a request, James. I'll get you in now. Hey guys, did you put me on then? I did. Sorry, yeah. mate, you dropped out, so I didn't actually hear anything. Um, yeah, I, I I was I was heavily engaged in the debate at the time. Um, I said no, and a couple of reasons why. The question was specifically around: Would you trade up to North Melbourne's pick to uh, to use Brian as leverage to do that? My personal view is the reality is that's going to be pick two, not pick one. Um, and the trading away what I think is a hugely valuable commodity to move up five spots when there's losing a quality player to move up five spots, that player might be a little bit better, might not be better at all. I think you mentioned that the points differential is about valued at pick 13. I think if you're offered pick 13 directly as a swap for Brian, where you could possibly get three first-round picks this year, assuming Davey also is valued as a first-round pick um, when he's bid on, I might have a different response. But I think I think it's... I don't think you get true value for Nick Bryan for another couple of years. I'd like to see if Essendon can develop his forward craft. And if you had, and we've seen just in the last, what, six weeks, how much Brian, uh, sorry, Draper's forward craft has developed. I I, had, I didn't think he was someone capable of kicking goals like he is right now, but he's proven me wrong. And if you've got a situation where Nick Bryan was able to develop that craft as and Draper keeps improving, you know, maybe there is a spot for two. But I think if you get hit, but Nick Bryan needs more exposure for us and opposition clubs to see his true value to actually get true value in a trade for him. I do. I am kind of a little bit resigned to the fact that at some point we probably will lose one of them, um, but I don't think it's now unless we got a, a, an extra quality, either a first round pick or a player who's the first round pick equivalent, like a Tim Taranto potentially might look at it. But that's my view. I just think it's a bit early. And I'm not convinced uh, trading up four or five picks is worth Nick Bryan. No, fair, fair enough on the on the original North question. I think unless you are able to identify someone that you want, and the reason why I thought North Melbourne might want to do it is that you know they're, they're as we saw on the weekend they're pretty good for midfielders, and usually you pick one, pick two. It's going to be now if Ashcroft gets big, pick, sorry, bid on and pick one is a midfielder. You know, one of the things that they're lacking is a another tall forward to go with Larky. And there's, I think there's Cadman, who's around the sort of rated the, the six or seven mark. And if they, you know, they traded down to get, you know, picking him at pick two would be a reach, if you, you understand what I mean. But if they could turn uh, pick two into Cadman and Brian, they might be interested in doing that. If And if we had a player that we go, okay, I think... You know, if someone like a Sheasel, I think, is you know someone who's dynamic and could who could help out, you know, who could be a, a really another one of those point of different players that we could gain access to, who I think we're going to miss out on. So that was just that was just my thoughts behind the question. Um, just on what you said about developing players, I think one thing they could look at doing next year, even if Brian's playing a lot in the VFL, is and, and Phillips is is tag teaming with Draper in the in the AFL is having a, a VFL ruckman come in, ruck a high percentage of the game and allow Brian to play forward to develop that craft. Because as you say, if Draper and Brian can both develop that forward craft, then you probably can play both in the same side. And yeah, that, that gives us a whole other option. So that's just my thought. I don't, yeah, that's potentially something you could do with him. Yeah, we might get a bit of an indicator on, on how the club views it and, and their list management strategy as well if we take a young Ruckman later in the draft this year. I, I wouldn't expect that we would go for one in... Uh, in well, I don't think there's one in and around where our first pick is anyway. Uh, and then obviously our second, third picks are going to be consumed with the Davy boys. So, 
yeah, if we were to pick up one late in the draft, it might it might be a bit of an early indicator, even if if we don't trade him away um, prior to that. I, and I don't think any of us really think that it's likely to happen. Um, yeah, on how they see our, um, our our list management going forward in regards to rucks. So, yeah, interesting conversation. Thanks, James, for for jumping on. Uh, and I think what I really liked was not just here, but also on your thread during the week, Humi, was that there was a lot of really considered answers and people really thought about it. Uh, I think typically those type of trade questions draw a lot of, uh, you know, the real emotional responses. We, we typically overrate players uh, of our own because of the emotion that we, we invest into them. And, and you know, you see things like, oh, you know, he's worth a first-round pick on his own or things like that. So, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think it was a, a really good conversation. So, yeah, good job. Excellent. Thanks so much for jumping on, James. As always, we appreciate uh, people who are willing to jump on and, and share their thoughts. So really appreciate it. Cheers. Right, well, let's, let's move on to looking at this week's game. We're actually playing on a Saturday and we actually have the full team for once. So we're not going to be speculating on who's going to be playing. So for Essendon, uh, Inns, our podcast uh, competitors, Jono, uh, back in. Uh, Rish and Raff, Parrish and McGrath are both back. Um, out is Caldwell with his calf, while D'Ambrosio and Menzi have been omitted. Uh, pretty pretty obvious ins, given that they're now avail- fit and available. Uh, were you a bit surprised that one of D'Ambrosio or Menzi wasn't able to stay in, especially given uh, Menzi in particular had that uh, pretty good second half? Yeah, I like what I saw from Menzi, but uh, I, I guess when you look at it on face value, it's hard to see who comes out. Uh, the only one that stands out for me is uh, was Perkins, but uh, you know he he looked pretty restricted last week and not fully fit. But I, I guess we give the benefit that he's better for the run and, and ready to go. And obviously Archie Perkins is a really talented young player, and we want to keep getting games into him. So so yeah, I think um, yeah, I think it makes sense. It's yeah, you, you bring two of our better players, two strong leaders, two good footballers. So it makes sense to bring him back. And unfortunately, uh, last one in, first one out. Yeah, I mean, D'Ambrosio pretty much came straight in for McGrath when McGrath had his has he had his COVID, so and he didn't really set the world on fire. So I think that was a pretty obvious one. And then yeah, I think there's a good chance Menzi probably is the sub again this week. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, looking at GWS, you know, it's a bit weird with a bit weird with the fixture. You know, you would hope that you play each team once before you start playing your double ups. And what ends up happening is you don't see a side until uh, round uh, twenty one. So it's the first time. Uh, I'll be looking at GWS closely. I haven't watched too many of their games, but in for them, Coniglio, uh, Briggs and Riccardi, while Ash, Halloran, uh, Brown have been omitted and Weir has the calf with Lockie Keith also coming in as he was the unused sub the previous week. So what are your first thoughts looking at what GWS have done? Yeah, they've gotten really tall, haven't they? So yeah, Lockie Keith, as you mentioned, was their unused sub last week and he's... Uh... He's picked in their twenty-two, so he he comes straight in as a key defender. Uh, Jake Riccardi's at uh, you know one ninety-five centimetre key forward. He's also played some footy down back, so I wonder whether he's come in to give them some versatility. Because given that he can play a bit of both ends, uh, try and stretch our defence maybe, but also you know they've got Keith down back as we mentioned, Sam Taylor down there who's a, a good key defender. And then Lika Lear, their other one who's still very raw uh, and only playing his second game. So I guess it gives them a bit of flexibility to send Riccardi or Himmelberg if they need it back. Uh, Briggs is a 22-year-old Ruckman in for his seventh game and only his second this season. So that'll give them two Ruckman up against Draper. Uh, I wonder actually whether your boy Brian might be sub to give us some coverage if if we do need a second Ruckman potentially. You know, clubs have been doing a bit of that. Um, but yeah, the Giants will go with two rucks and then Cogniglio we've obviously seen before uh, and you know he's a really high quality footballer but they've got uh, the four tools on the bench too so they're four bench players I know teams don't line up as they're picked on a Thursday night but I just thought that was interesting they're all 195 centimetres plus Himmelberg, Alia, uh, Briggs and Riccardi so yeah that was a little bit weird uh, and then I think a player to keep an eye on is, is James Peatling. He was their mid-season draft pick last year. He's played 14 games, 10 of them this year. He's a really fast, dynamic medium forward. He's, he's kicked the nine goals in his 10 games this year. 
but he's kicked three lots of three. So when he gets on a bit of a roll, he can get a little bit hot. And he, he, like a lot of young players, particularly playing that sort of small medium forward role, he, um, he, yeah, he, he has had some moments where he struggled to find the footy, but yeah, he's definitely one to keep an eye on. So let's take a look at GWS for this season. So only five wins uh, and their five wins have come against pretty lowly sides. So the, the Suns are the highest team that they've beat. Other than that, they've beaten the Crows, Eagles, North and Hawks. And they've come off a four-game losing streak where they have played some some quite good sides in Port Lions, Carlton and Sydney. So if you look at since McVay's taken over, uh, they've gone three and seven, which is a pretty similar record to what they were under Cameron. So not really that much improvement from them. So one area which they've been pretty good so far is uh, a clearance differential of plus 1.1 or centre clearance differential. So they, they are doing well in the centre but then they're turning the ball over. So they're conceding, uh, they're turning the ball over three, almost four times more uh, than their opponents are in a game. Okay, so it to me, just looking at the stats already, it may play out similar to the North game for us. North had a sort of similar stat line where they were winning center clearances, but they were turning the ball over. So again, our the role of our halfbacks and, and intercept defenders is going to be a big one in this game. However, Giants are a much better tackling side than North are. So the ease of our ball movement may be a bit more restricted than it, than it was against North. So they have a plus four tackle differential. And that if you compare that to North, North were minus 5.4. And so they're fourth overall tackles and, and third in their differential. So they, they're quite a, a high effort side from that, that point of view. But even though they are quite high for tackles, they're, they're 14th overall for inside 50 tackles. Now, Essendon aren't much better at 13, but if you take since round 10, which is sort of the tipping point for both sides, Cameron gets uh, Cameron quits and Essen has that Sydney game. GWS is 17th for inside 50 tackles, while Essen in the second. So it's become one of our strengths, even though our overall stats are quite low. So the key stats between their wins and their losses in uh, one of the key areas for us to win this week is going to be stoppage clearances. GWS uh, plus 5.8 in stoppage clearances in wins, but minus five in losses. And a lot of their... A lot of the rest of their stats go from that. So if they're winning stoppage, they're winning uh, contested possessions. And then if you're winning contested possessions, you're able to control the ball on the outside. So uh, in their wins, they're 71 uncontested, uncontested possessions up, but minus 25 in losses. Well, they're plus uh, 37 marks in wins, well, minus 12 in losses. So to me, stoppage clearance seems to be the real point where... It, it decides the game for GWS. If, if they can get on top in stoppage, they'll be able to control the ball and win the game. Whereas if we can at least match them in stoppage, then we're going to go a long way to limiting their ability to win the game. What's your thoughts on the Giants? Yeah, they're an interesting one. Although I think I say that every week. Uh, there was a lot of hype over them when Mark McVay took over, wasn't there? He, he got a, or the Giants won their first game when McVay was coach by 52 points against West Coast. And, you know, they, they seemed up and about and there was a lot of, you know, positive talk in the media. That weekend, we we lost to Richmond and slumped to two and eight. And I guess with McVeigh, Heard and Solomon in the coach's box, it was natural that our own fan group would would look at what they were doing and, and you know, sort of wonder what if. Uh, ironically, um, and you mentioned it, mate, we, uh, we've been tracking our own improvement since that that round nine loss against the Swans, which, you know, that that SCG horror show and and it lines up exactly with the pre and post McVeigh uh, or Cameron McVeigh uh, handover. So it, it's a good uh, comparison time to have a look at what the two teams have done since then. So under McVeigh, the Giants uh, have improved their scoring, not, not by a lot. They're, they're plus five points a game. But just from watching them play, you can see that they're trying to be more direct. They're trying to flip the ball around a little bit more by foot. Uh, they're plus eight and a half kicks a game, but they're also down 20 handballs in the process. So they definitely, you know, switch the, the way they're playing. Um, but what that has meant is that their disposal efficiency is down by 3% and they're, they're turning the ball over an extra four times a game. Uh, you touched on contested ball and stoppages, but that was once a real big strength of their game. That was the thing that they could really rely on. And under Cameron, they were seventh in the AFL. They were plus one and a half almost for contested ball. And since McVay took over uh, in round 10, they've dropped to 17th in the AFL over that period with a minus 11 differential. 
I've had some player challenges and guys in and out, but probably not at the level that you would expect it to drop away that far. They were ninth for stoppages at plus 1.2 a game, and they've dropped to 18th uh, since round 10 at minus 60 games. So, and, and then in that same period where we're sixth for contested ball differential plus 4.3 and ninth for stoppages, we're basically break even. So, um, you know, and then again, two parts of the game where we took a hit last week and we'll need to improve. You know, we should have an ascendancy on paper, but we, we really need to up our game on last week. I think the other area they've really gone backwards is what they're doing defensively. They're conceding more marks inside 50. They've gone from 10th at 10.3 a game up to around 9 to 17. So they can see the second most um, marks inside their own defensive 50 at 13.3 a game. Whereas we've taken the fourth month most marks inside our own forward 50 in that period. So, yeah, they've gone backwards at an alarming rate in terms of being able to, to stop opposition players marking their forward line. And, and we've improved our game to be taking more marks. You, you touched on inside 50 tackles. They were fourth in the AFL and they've since dropped to 17 where we've gone the other way. We've gone from 17th to second. They've gone from 13th to 17th for inside 50s against conceding the second most in the AFL. And we, again, we've improved. We've gone from 14th to third. So we, we now concede, or since round 10, we concede the third least number of inside 50s in the AFL. And keep in mind in that period, we've played a lot of really good opposition. And then I think the other thing that's happened is, and, I think most of us would have seen the Mark McVeigh's press conference. Uh, he was really emotional and, and, and spoke from the heart, which you know, was always a quality of Mark McVeigh. Um, the last four weeks, they've dropped even further. So comparing his first sort of six weeks as coach compared to the last four, they're down 10 and a half stoppages, stoppage wins a game, and they're um, down 21 contested possessions. So, a big drop-off, that's impacted them on the outside. They're down 66 uncontested possessions and 11 less tackles a game. Disposal efficiencies dropped to 68. You're not going to win too many games of football when you drop below 70 and they're generating five less turnovers from the opposition. So there has been a big drop-off over the last four weeks. I think having watched their last two games relatively closely, to be honest, watching them against the Swans last week, I mentioned this to you before, I I actually got drawn to watching the Swans play more than the Giants, given given the game the way the game played out. But the thing that stood out last week was the Swans' ability to transition ball from midfield and halfback turnovers and use their their halfbackers and and, and wingers to really get involved. Something as you mentioned, where we we've become really strong at, and 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 you know we were really good at last week. It was our saving grace, wasn't it? And then. You know, the week before against Carlton was similar, but Carlton were able to do it from clearance. So they scored 51 points to 14 from clearances. So Carlton outscored GWS, that is. But 38 of those 51 points for Carlton came from stoppages in their defensive half of the ground. So they were able to to take the ball from stoppage in, in the Giants' forward half and work the ball down into scoring opportunities. So I think it, it all suggests that the way we've been playing and our focus on contested ball and clearance, if we can get that back, as well as our, you know, our outside spread, our halfback run, our tackling pressure should hold us in good stead this week if we can get, yeah, as I mentioned, our contested ball back on track. And, and we should see it being a big week for our marking forwards. Yeah, and I think that's, you touched on the fact that they've gone quite tall. And I think that's probably part of, you know, the, the inability to stop marks inside 50 and it's probably a reason why they have gone tall, especially after watching what when they would have watched Essendon against North Melbourne and the way the tall forwards were able to really, you know, get a hold of, of North Melbourne, particularly uh, particularly uh, outside of Mackay on right. Uh, that was probably a, an impetus behind them actually going for that such a tall tall playing list. So I guess that's what sort of match tactics are we looking at this week? What are the what are the key focuses for the team? Yeah, firstly, I'm making sure that we keep our our six forwards. So I want to make sure that we don't make that mistake that we did against the Pies and that we allow our half forwards to get up the ground. So I'm I'm hoping and, and, you know, if I was in the the coach's box, heaven forbid, uh, I wouldn't be 
panicking about our result at stoppage last week and trying to fix that by rolling a, a half forward up to, to stoppage and trying to get an extra man there. I would keep our six forwards in place because I think if we don't do that, we run the risk of playing into their hands and making it easier for them to win the ball back at, at half back through an outnumber. So number one, keeping our, our six forwards as forwards. In doing that, I'm sending Will Snelling to Isaac Cumming. So he's my, my big sort of tag sit on uh, defense, you know, defensive run with this week. And shout out to, to Anthony, who's at Anthproc on Twitter. Uh, he called this out during the week that Cumming is averaging 536 metres gain a game. He's, he's their number one in that area at 75% efficiency. So he's really damaging. By 40, has dropped off over the last month. Uh, as you know, their their game has dropped off as a whole. But he's a player that's hurt us recently. In, in his last two games, he's he's had twenty two disposals in each and really carved us up. He's number three at the Giants for intercept. He's number one for total effective kicks at the Giants and ninth in the entire AFL. And, and they don't have another player in the top forty nine. Um, so uh, you know, he th- that just sort of says how how good he is at using the ball and how damaging he can be. Uh, if you take out their rucks, which are typically for most teams the number one at score launch, given the impact of stoppages, you know, Ruckman's the first one to touch the ball. Um, he's their next in line for score launches. Uh, so, yeah, I, th- I really think if we can lock down him, he he's the one that can hurt us, you know, coming out of our forward line. So I, I really want to see us stop that. I think it's important that we don't ignore Whitfield in the process if he's at halfback or on a wing. Um, he's had a lot of big games against us over the years. But I think Isaac Cummings is the one that I really want to see us take out of the game. The other thing that I'm doing or not doing this week is I'm, I'm leaving Langford out of the midfield rotations. He, he attended 19 centre bounces last week. Merritt was our only midfielder who was in there for more. And he only won the one centre clearance. I, I don't think it's a part of the game he's, he's particularly good at. He does get sucked into the ball a little bit. And I don't think he's great below his knees. So uh, I think it was probably higher last week than maybe they intended with Caldwell being subbed off uh, because early in the game or from the start of the game, he played that Stringer handover, which probably to be fair suits him more. So Stringer went into the centre bounce, went forward, Langford then came up into the midfield and they kicked, uh, I think, four of our first five goals between them playing that role. So I'm leaving Langford forward, a bit of wing, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of midfield if we need to give some other guys a rest, but I'm not, I'm not having him in there too much uh, and, and using him where his strengths are. And then I'm giving extra, um, you know, midfield time to to Hobbs and obviously Parrish coming in and I'm giving more midfield responsibility to Perkins. And then to extend on that, I'm, I'm ditching the tag. So Caldwell's out anyway. Um, and we don't really have someone who can go and fill that void, at least not that we've seen. But I am using Parrish and Perkins as defensive mids at centre clearances and stoppage. We saw... Parish do that to good effect against the Swans on Mills. Um, Perkins against Port also did a little bit of that at centre bounce, didn't he, where he, he went into a bit of a defensive stopper role. So it's sort of shown they can do it at least at the centre clearance. And Hopper's the one that that I'm going to and making sure that we we restrict at centre clearance. He's he's there number one in the centre. Uh, he's seventh in the AFL for, for average centre clearances a game. So he's really effective. And if he's not in there, Tom Green is the other one that that I think we should keep an eye on too. So they're their two extractors. They get their hands on the footy. They're really good at bringing their other mids into the game. Uh, But, you know, ultimately Hopper is the one that that I'm really focused on restricting. And then at stoppage, it's a little bit different. I think um, Green then becomes the priority. He's the one that, that seems to be better when there's a bit more chaos and a bit more congestion. Whereas Hopper uh, um, sort of prefers a bit like Stringer does when it's a little bit more open. Uh, so yeah, at stoppage it's Green, and then um, and then Caniglio is the other one. I think we really need to keep an eye on. He's really dangerous in traffic and really dangerous around goals. So I think if it's a forward half stoppage, uh, Stephen Caniglio is one that that we need to make sure that we sit on and 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 reduce his um, influence at stoppage. Uh, and then a couple of questions for you, mate. I've got a couple of quick match-up ones for you. Who are you sending to Toby Green? Well, I'm not going to claim to be a defensive expert, but I think Kelly's 
the obvious first choice with that. Uh, so Toby Green was 21 disposals, two, point, two, and two goals, two behinds last time he played. So he had four shots on goal. Uh, looking back at uh, Adelaide's games against GWS, uh, Green kicked two in 2021 against them and zero in 2020. Uh, and I think from just quick glances at the heights, Kelly was on him in those games. And for me, a two-goal game from Green is a win from us. If he's kicking any more than that, he's going to have a real impact on the overall result. So keeping him two, two is a pass mark for us. And I think Kelly's the man to do that. Uh, yep. Makes sense. So next one on the hot list is Jesse Hogan. Uh, to me, that's a Levenny matchup. Uh, obviously Hogan's not the tallest forward. Uh, he's got a bit of power uh, and he's also got a bit of, bit of pace on the lead. So I think Laverty's the one to go with there. And then I, I guess they're going to run with either Himmelberg or I, I guess there's a chance that Riccardi and Himmelberg will play, both play forward. But but let's assume that it's Himmelberg's their, their next priority. Who who are you sending there? Well, I'd, I'd say uh, BCT. BCT's probably should be getting the, t- the tallest forward. And as you say, they're playing a couple... It's playing two Ruckmans. So there's a chance that the Ruckman's going to end up down there as well. So BCT probably uh, rolls onto him when he's down there. And then Ridley would roll on there. But if they're... You know, if the, the Ruckman are rotating through the bench, there's an opportunity to get... Ridley a, a lesser opponent and allow him to play that intercept role, which as we sort of established is going to be key if uh, GWS got on top in the in the center clearances there. So that's my thoughts. Yeah, I like. I think I think BTT on on Himmelberg is is the right move. I I, I quite like when Ridley plays on the second ruckman. Um, dangerous, the famous last words in saying this, but they're typically not the smartest forwards. So it does give him the ability to to defend. And and work off and, and become a loose man when needed. Uh, and then I guess the other one, two players that have hurt us a lot that we haven't spoken a lot about tonight, Josh Kelly and and Lockie Whitfield. I guess we've more focused on stopping the ball to get to them. Uh, but if one of them does run hot, what do you think we should do in game to try and curtail that? Well, I think there's with Caldwell out and. Shield out. You probably don't want to. Shield could Parish could play the the stopping role against Mills because we also had Shield, you know, doing the center clearances in in that Swans game. Without Shield, Parish we need Parish in the center to be focused more on winning the ball. So I would, if Kelly starts really starting to hurt us, I would be prepared to move McGrath up into the midfield, play that stopping role. He did it at the start of the year against Petrarca, so I think he could do that. And then you you just sort of reshuffle Heppel. Hebble folds back, Langford moves up, moves up to the wing, and you you sort of deal with it that way. So that's that's what I would do. Um, I'm not sure they will. I think they'll they'll keep McGrath back because they've been pretty comfortable with him down there. And then uh, Whitfield, uh, for me, that would be a big challenge for Durham. I'll be telling him, you know, you're going to be going to play on one of the premier, you know, wingman halfback players in the comp. It'd give him, you know, if he's able to stop him, fantastic. And if he's not, he learns a pretty valuable lesson about the level he needs to get to in terms of being an excellent AFL wingman, which I think, given what we've seen, he can be. So those are my thoughts there. Yeah, I think you make some really good points. I agree. Um, yeah, well said. That's all right. Well, we'll get to our, our final thought. And uh, given the Essendon connection in the box, uh, he's already done a fair job of trying to fire them up uh, after the, the previous game. But do you think McVay is going to try to fire his team up more than usual, given that it's Essendon that they're playing this week and, and his connection there? Yeah, I, I think so. I I reckon it could be a final audition for him. Um, I'd, I'd love to see him get the job and, and be rewarded. But I think given the way they've been playing over the last few weeks, uh, it looks like he, they might not be buying into whatever he's trying to do. So I think he'll really be trying to, to fire them up to A, get a win against us, but B, also help his, his coaching credentials. So yeah. I think we'll get a good indication in the first... 15 minutes of the game as to how much they bought into that. And I think mm-hmm. we're, we're going to have to be up for it and ready for it and, and not get sucked yeah. in and just focus on, on winning the contest and, and trying to, you know, it's not, it's not Collingwood style crowd, is it? It's not going to be overly loud with too many of them, but mm-hmm. uh, we are playing away from home. So we won't have our typical crowd there either. So I think it's really important that we start this game well and, and any heat's going to come early and that we absorb that and, and get some early goals on the board. 
Yeah, well, I think just just going back to the GWS coaching position, you see with with interim coaches that eventually get the job, you know, there's a real groundswell of support from the players. That that's really what drives them getting the job. So obviously, the the best example is Ruse back in the early 2000s with the Swans. Uh, but if you look in recent recent years, so Teague at Carlton and Shaw at North, uh, you know, the, the players really responded well to them early, and that's what encouraged the the uh, those those sites to, to keep stick with them as as full time full time coaches. So as you sort of say, you know, we'll, we'll learn a lot about how how likely the or how much the GWS players want McVay to be coach based on how they come out at the start here. Yeah, spot on, mate. Well, thank you once again, mate, for for keeping us organised this week, and great job on the the Brian hypothetical. I really enjoyed that, mate. That was a uh, thanks. Thanks for agreeing to argue the point that you. You yourself didn't. Uh, you yourself didn't support. You were very gracious there in letting me take the side I wanted. Um, big shout out to James as well. Thanks for jumping on to share your thoughts. Really, really valuable insight, um, both uh, on the pod and also through the Twitter thread. Uh, that's it from us, I think. Jono, is that any last words? No, no. Just looking forward to uh, sitting on the the couch, mate, and and taking this one in, and hopefully we can get another win. Absolutely. Go Dons. Cheers, mate.